we have Alexa. Have you seen? Have you seen? So we're rolling, and this is cause <laughs> for effect. I'm here with Rachel Glenn. 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 See, are you afraid you're still gonna have that because that's your stage name? Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. It's funny because I'm like made the change, and yeah. then the number of times I've gotten the question, "Is it Glenn or Glynn? And part of me is like. Oh, okay, no. but when when was the last time that the Y made the E eh sound for anyone? When has that ever happened in the English language? But I'm also like, okay, I guess I just don't say it clearly. So I'm like, for the moment, I'm going to be like, that's on me. But it's a lot easier than Wusty. Right. Like, that's just six letters of German hell for so <laughs> many people. German hell. Okay. How did you How did you come about that? How did I choose to change my name, or how did I choose the name I chose? Both. Both. I'm, yeah, I'm really curious because it because it is kind of some people do derivative things. Yeah. But it's not necessarily derivative of Wusty. Wusty. Yeah. Well, it's really hard to find a derivative of Wusty. Yeah. Like W O E S T E. Like what do you what right. do you do with that? So I for the longest time was like because it had been suggested to me almost since high school that I might need a stage name, and I was like okay. But I'm going to try to do it with my own name. Because right. I, I love my family. I love my name. I think it's a really unique thing and whatever. But it was getting to the point where I I was having difficulties professionally with the last name Wusty. Like, people would just throw my resume on the discard pile when they couldn't figure out how to say my name. And then sometimes I'd say it in my slate. And then I'd do my thing. And I'd see it move off the discard pile and back into the yes pile. Really? Like, yeah. It's the, it was that simple for some people. It was that simple for some people. Like, her name, I can't figure it out. It's driving me crazy. It's going in the no pile, so I don't have to worry about it. And I was like, really? Clearly something you did, did. took it off the no pile. Would take it off the no pile. But, you know, not every time. And so I was just like, okay, that's weird. But then the straw that kind of, like, broke the camel's back was I was at, I was at a callback, and I'm not going to say where. Right. And they, it wasn't even the real choreographer for the show, but it was a guest choreographer. It was for a chorus line which, like, every single theater this summer did, so right. still can't guess which theater. And I'd, like, learned the choreography back in my dance styles class, and I know it since high school because my teacher then was on the national tour, so, like, I know this choreography. Right. I'm good at it. But the the person who's running it goes, Rachel, and then doesn't give a last name. And three of us in the room, knowing that there are other Rachels, because, I'm sorry, we were born in the late 90s and friends happened. Yes, friends did happen. <laughs> friends we're happened. We're all sorry that friends happened. But. We're just, you know, it <laughs> happened. There are so many Rachels. My mom was so mad because she'd had the name Rachel picked out since she was, like, 12. So oh, she, like, no. picked the name and named her kid that. And then I got to kindergarten, and I was one of, like, four Rachels in my kindergarten class. And my mom was like, what happened? Right, and, and you're a like, 96 baby, right? Yeah. Okay, so you're right there at the start right, of Friends. Yeah, okay. right as the Friends surge happened. Yeah. So knowing that there are multiple Rachels, we kind of all at once say, which one? Right. You know, because you have to. And um, the choreographer's like, because and that's so that's the response I've gotten my whole life is like teachers will be doing roll call and I'm you know right at the bottom because it's W and I watch as they like see this W and then they just kind of stop and their face is like oh no and I so I, I know the look I know it's me like just off of <laughs> and so I just kind of like raise my hand and go oh it's Wusty you know because usually people really appreciate that because now they're not like staring at it and being driven crazy right. like how do you say this right like i'm so glad she knows who that it's her but like how do you say it yeah so i usually just volunteer the information put everybody out of their misery so anyway this person goes i would have gotten it eventually oh and then and this is like to do it in a small group so i'm one of five people yeah out there to do it refuses to watch me 
Like, really? focuses solely on the four other people. And I know this because I was on the end. Yeah. So I could see her not looking at me. And I can also see the other four watching me for the choreography. Right. So did you, you didn't get the job. No. And the funny thing is, is that person was not even the choreographer. They were just there standing in for the choreographer. Right. So there were other people in the room. Now, like, I'm sure any... There were, like, other parts of the callback. So there are, there are infinite reasons as to why I didn't get the job. But that sure as heck didn't help. Right. Plus, it was just, like, mean. Yeah. Just downright mean. That was kind of the moment where I went, all right, that's enough. I'd thought about it a little bit throughout college and, like, always having to explain my last name because people, when I say Woosty, they go, Woosty? And I go, no. And some people are like, Woosty. And I'm like, no. <laughs> Wusty, as in like book or cook, that uh sound. Okay. So I'd kind of like talked to my parents about it before of like, if I change my name, what, you know, what are you guys kind of comfortable with? And my right. mom was like, I would really like you to not just make one up or just like pick one that you like because she's like, then it feels like you're abandoning your family. Like saying, okay. I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. I don't bear your last name. Right. I'm not getting married and choosing a new family to start on my own. I'm literally just throwing away my family name. Right. My mom wasn't like in love with that idea. Yeah. Which I get. Did you have those preconceived notions of if you had chosen a name outside of your families that you'd be like abandoning your family? Or was that something that she brought to your attention? That, it was kind of something she brought to my attention. Okay. I was originally cool with it. I was because I'd kind of talked to Joe Deere, the, the program here about, you know, if I change my name, how how do you suggest going about it? And he was like, you know, maybe pick some qualities about you that you like and then find a name based off of that. So like Martin Sheen picked his last name. Because mm -hmm. he's really Estevez. Right. He picked Sheen because he liked the idea of something shiny and bright. And he always came off as shiny and bright and all-American and whatever. Okay. So that's how he ended up with Sheen. And so for me, I was like, okay, well, what about like Albright or something, mm -hmm. you know? I have a very sunny personality. And then um, apparently I just, I read as like really intelligent really quickly to a lot of people. And yes. so <laughs> like bright was kind of like a word that had been applied to me pretty often. So I thought right. about that. But that one, I guess, held a weird meaning for my mom. So she was like, maybe take my maiden name, Walker, and your dad's last name, Wusty, and use the letters and make, like, an anagram name. And I was like, that's so complicated. But I tried it for a while. Yeah. I was, like, trying to find different things. There's not a lot you can do with those that, like, either sounds kind of normal or fits me. Right. So I was kind of like, no, I'll just dig through my family names. Mm hmm and so I remembered that my cousin... So, okay. Uh, my name is technically, like, fully Rachel Mary Cecilia Wusty. Okay. My great-grandmother on my mom's side was named Mary Cecilia Glynn. Okay. And I, I loved her. I loved my great... My great-grandma Mimi was what we called her. She collected <laughs> okay. teddy bears. She was, a, she was a fun, fun lady. And really, really, really strong. Like, kind of incredible, the things she did for her family. And then I remembered my cousin is a DJ in mm -hmm. Florida. And instead of going by like Chloe Walker, she goes by DJ Glynn because that's her middle name. Okay. And so I was like, I kind of talked to her and I was like, how would you feel if I used it too? And like made it, made it a performing last name for the family. And she was like, go for it. Okay. So now my name is Rachel Mary Cecilia Glynn. So I have all of my great grandmother in there. Oh, wow. Which is really. Yeah, that's incredible. That's really meaningful, like for me and for the rest of the family. Mm. So anyway, that was, that was kind of how it happened. Okay. And I, I've not 
legally changed it. Right. So like on all legal documents, I'm still Rachel Woosty. But professionally, yeah, I use Glynn just because it's it's a little bit... It's still maybe not the simplest thing, but given right. the last names in my family, I was like, I can either go super generic and use Sanders. I think of Bernie immediately. Immediately. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And then there was Boland, which is just, I don't know, it felt really it's a mouthful. round. And yes. I was like, that's not me. McPhillips, which I was like, that's super Irish. That's way Irish. That was like... That was kind of like the second choice. Okay. Walker, which is like... I feel like there's a bunch of Rachel Walkers in the world. There's so many... There's so many Walkers in the world. Yeah. And then there's just, yeah, so many Rachel Walkers. And I was like, I'm not going to mess with that. So that left McPhillips, which was super Irish, and Glynn. And I was like, you know what? I, I really like Glynn. Yeah. So that was, that was how, it, how it happened. Excellent. Yeah. And everybody's been super cooperative and understanding yeah. about it. Everyone's been like really, really making the effort. I changed it on Facebook and like left mm-hmm. Rachel Wissy, changed my Instagram handle, whatever. And yeah, everyone's like trying really hard to call me Rachel Glynn. Now, some of my classmates, my roommates, I'm still Rachel Wissy to them. And right. of course, like that's, yeah, that's how you got to know me. But yeah, now when I introduce myself professionally, when I submit audition material, I'm Rachel Glynn and that's like what's on my website and everything else. So yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. Really cool. That, that is really cool. You mentioned your roommates there. Mm. Now, I'm aware of it slightly <laughs> because I think Dana was one of the first people that I met. But you guys have, you call it the promised land, right? Yes. Yeah. What? Tell me, tell me about that. Tell me about your roommates because they're all theater people. Yes. Yeah. All theater. How does that, does that ever get really competitive, really difficult? Weirdly, no, not really. Really? No, like Dana and I were even called back for the same part this semester, which she got, and then I ended up not getting cast, but it was never the kind of thing where I was like, I'm going to beat Dana. It was like, I'd like this part. She'd like this part. And when she got it, I was thrilled for her, sad about my own situation, but still thrilled for her. Right. For some reason, we're, a lot of us are very different types, which works well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a little easier to not be competitive with one another because we're not usually getting called back for the exact same stuff. Right. Or if we are, we're on like two different ends of what could work for that part. Mm-hmm. And so if the other person gets it, we go, cool. They wanted to go in that direction. It's right. It's less, less of a personal thing. Right. So yeah, we call it the promised land because we have Kaylee Modell, Mallory Cohen Krauss, Dana Bixler, and me, Mallory Cohen. They are Jewish. And Kaylee is also Jewish. Right. And then Dana is, I believe, Methodist. And I'm Catholic. When we first kind of got the apartment together, we were like, every apartment in this department has a name. Okay. Every apartment has been nicknamed something. Right. So you have the Barbie Malibu Dream House. You have the side hoe. Or you had the side hoe. I guess that one technically split and went into different directions. Oh, we lost the side hoe? We lost the side hoe. (laughs) Oh, that's always a sad day. I know. (laughs) Half of these are not appropriate. That's okay. There's the farmhouse. That's appropriate. That's appropriate. The lion's den. The parents will like that one. Yes. And then, so we were talking, we were like, well, what do we name it? Because we're all very different people on a lot of levels. And there's this weird thing that happens where I'll make a joke. Yes. Like, I'll say something that I'm, like, completely joking about. Mm -hmm. We're trying to be funny. And the others latch onto it and they're like, no, that's a really good idea. Yeah. So I just went, well, we got two Jews. We got two Christians. We call it the promised land, you know, Jerusalem's where the Jews and the Christians meet. (laughs) And they all were like, that's it. And I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? But then the longer we thought about it, we were like, no, actually we kind of, we kind of love it. It kind of works really well. It works. It's the one where you go for like a chill wine night or a really good brunch. (laughs) You you feel like a cool wine ant. I don't know if you've ever been told that, but... I, yep. You got you got this look on your face like that's what I'm going for. <laughs> that's it's 
I've just been told it constantly. I'm actually yeah. usually the wine mom. The wine mom. Everyone called me mom freshman year because I had like a stick really far up my butt. I was, Can like, I really tell uptight. you that I'm not shocked? Yeah. I didn't know you then, but like... It's not surprising. You have this energy like that you've just found the ability to swear. Yeah, there was just like, college is a journey and the stick comes out of your butt somewhere yes. along the line. And you figure out like how to be a human being. So then I've become a wine mom. Yeah. That's great. Okay, so you're a fun wine... I, fun. I think aunt. For now, yeah. For now. <laughs> Someday I'm going to have, like, seven children, and, like, all of my friends are like, yeah, Rachel's just going to have so many kids, and I'm like, it, it, cool, but we're not at that phase yet, we're so not for there. now I'm, like, the chill wine aunt right. cousin person. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the phase that we are at then. Yes. Which is you're a senior. I am. And how how is Super that feeling? <laughs> yeah? Yeah, because you wake up some days and you're like, no, I'm definitely still a freshman. Right. Like, I know nothing, and I don't know what I'm doing. If you'd asked me, like, last semester, how did I feel about being a senior, I would have been like, not ready, not ready, not ready, not ready, not ready. Don't make me do it. But then I had an insane summer, and I kind of came back and was like, no, I'm ready. Like, I'm really ready to be a senior and to kind of, like, solidify everything that I'm pretty sure I already know about myself. Right. And somewhere somewhere along in there, I think between, like, The Mystery of Edwin Drood and I did a production of The Secret Garden over the summer. Okay. Somewhere in there, acting just clicked in my brain, and I suddenly wasn't sitting there like, but what are Stanislavski's ten steps? <laughs> um, <laughs> it was just kind of like, that's what I want, now I'm gonna get it. Right. Or, like, I've read this character, cool. I was, like, a big bookworm as a kid, so... Mm-hmm. Reading a script is really, really informative for me. Right. Um, so, you know, when I read a script and I look at a character and I go, okay, well, what aspects of me live in them? And then I just kind of draw those out and go mm-hmm. from there. And it all just clicked recently. And with it kind of comes like this sense of confidence of like, no, I know I'm good. And I know that what I'm doing is going to work. And if it doesn't, I'll just try something different. So, yeah, I kind of came into senior year and was like, yeah, it's super weird to be a senior. I remember being a freshman and looking up at the seniors and being like, they're amazing and doing things that I'll never be able to do. And oh, my God. (laughs) And I have no idea if this year's freshmen are looking at me or my classmates going, oh, my God. But it doesn't it doesn't matter anymore. Right. Like, I know what I do and I'm I'm ready to do it professionally. Mostly. I'm grateful that graduation isn't until Star Wars Day. We graduate on May the 4th this year. Do you really? Yes, we do. Well, that's, that's excellent. Honestly, tempted to like look at Sam Maxwell and Justin Matthews and be like, so we're graduating with lightsabers in our hands, right? Oh like my we goodness. are, we're taking lightsabers up there, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know either of them very well, but just watching Sam like bebop into class, he'd take a lightsaber up on stage. And, Sam like... has a beanie that's also Bluetooth. It's also Bluetooth speakers. And if you look at where normally it's like a it's tag like, that has the brand, it's actually buttons about like volume up or volume down. They're like inside the beanie. It doesn't even hook on yeah. his ears or anything. He just pulls on the hat and the speakers are like right into his ear. He is blonde Will Roland. Right. And we all know it. Right. He's done Michael in the bathroom recently. Really? We had to do an assignment where we auditioned for like, what are we right for on Broadway right now? Okay. And Ooh, Sam, that'd be tough right now. It's... Kind of, and kind of not. It's shocking. Okay. And so, like, Colin Hodgkin came in and auditioned for Spongebob, you know. Yes. Of course. (laughs) Sam came in and auditioned for Be More Chill, and we were like, "Yeah, you're going to book tomorrow. Like, he's perfect for it. It's incredible. So we're like, go to New York, audition. (laughs) He's like, okay. Um, Yeah, because they had the open call recently. They did, and he actually did not get to go because he's in Crazy For You, and Joe Deere kind of looked at him and he was like, buddy, you're not equity. I mean, the chances of you getting seen on this first time out as a non-EC candidate. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, you'd probably just be blowing a lot of money to go to New York to not be seen. Right. And Sam was like, yeah, you're right. So he's going to hit up a later audition Mm -hmm. for, like, a national tour or something like that, where non-act candidates have a little more, a little better chance Mm -hmm. at getting cast. I can appreciate Joe for that, because you need those people at this point in life where it's like, listen, I know you want to do the thing, but... And you'd be good at the thing. But think about it. Think about the logistics of it. Exactly. And, yeah, Joe is amazing thinking of stuff like that. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, that, like, never would have occurred to me. I would have been like, but they're casting! Right. Let me go! Exactly. And Joe would have been like, hmm. Are you sure? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy how smart the professors are. It's like they it's, should it's be It's like they've had careers. Or, like, yeah. Yeah, it's so strange. It's like they're teachers or something because they've done it. I I don't know. It's I so odd. Can't really put my finger on it, no. but something like that. Whoever decided to put them in here is a genius because clearly they had no idea that they'd be good at this. <laughs> they were like, this person seems fun. <laughs> this person seems like a good person to work with. Sure. Yeah. We'll pay you the big bucks. I'm kidding. No one makes any no money. No one makes any money being a teacher. But engineers. Engineers are like the only ones who make money yes, these days. True. Which brings me to another point. If you weren't doing theater, you have a minor I do. in history. Yeah. Yes. yes. How did the, I mean, you said you were a bookworm. So is that where that came from? Or was it something else completely? Cause like a trip in your childhood or just you read about some stuff and you were like, ooh, history. I mean, I don't know if you would know this like book series. But it's called the Dear America books. And they were a bunch of like heard of them. fiction. But pe- people would basically write these books as diaries of people who lived in this time period, usually young girls. Right. Or like you had the American Girl books, which I loved. And so, you know, obviously it's fiction and these people are just kind of like making it up, but they're basing it on a lot of fact and a lot of things. So that kind of hooked me in. And my family has always loved going on. But we're, we're an entire family of nerds. Okay. Like, we'll just preface with that. My family is a bunch of nerds. Mm-hmm. So we would go. So up in Lake George, there's Fort William Henry, where mm. um, one of the big battles of the war the, the French and Indian War happened, which is right near Fort Ticonderoga, which is where one of the, the big deciding battles of the American Revolution happened. So there was that. And then Carillon Park, I started volunteering at when I was 11. I can't, I don't know when the love for history showed up. I, I think it's just kind of always been there. Okay. Because we have, we have so much to learn from it. Mm-hmm. I, it was my backup plan. Okay. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Musical theater programs, fun fact, have a 2% acceptance rate, 2 to 4% acceptance rate across, across the country. The, really? Everywhere. I'm like, really glad I can't sing and forgot to audition. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's bad. We're talking, I applied to Princeton with a 7% acceptance rate. Yeah. Almost just for fun. Like, I, there was a slight chance I'd get in, but not like a... One of those, I have to try it. Like, like it's for kind fun. of my reach school. Why not? Yes. Did not get into Princeton. Did get in here. Right. And was like, that's it. That's the sign from God. <laughs> I'm not going, going to Princeton. I am going to musical theater school. Because yes. had I gone to Princeton, I would have gone for history. Really? Yeah. Huh. I was in this big place where I like, I really could have done either. Okay. I guess. I wanted to do theater, but lots of self-doubt. Went to high school with some real powerhouses mm-hmm. and kind of always felt like they were both better than I was and, you know, like I was the third wheel actress or whatever. Okay. Um, so wanted, wanted theater really badly and worked my ass off for it, but didn't necessarily like have all of the confidence and knowing that every school had a 2% acceptance rate. Mm-hmm. That's, that's daunting. Oh Those yeah. Not good odds. 
Not at all. Like, those are horrible, horrible odds. Mm -hmm. Literally every Ivy League college has a higher acceptance rate than musical theater programs. BFA, musical theater programs. That was part of when my parents said that I could do musical theater, Mm because we had the discussion, like, my sophomore year of high school. They were like, but you need to do a lot of research Mm -hmm. about what it's going to take to get in. You need to do a lot of preparation. There will be no slacking. Because it's a big financial commitment to train for something like this. As Absolutely. Well. So I was very, very blessed in that my parents were like, if this is what you think is going to make you happiest, then yeah, we support you. Right. And they were like, and you need a good backup plan. Not like a half-assed backup plan, like a, oh, I guess I'll just, you know, go into business or something. So yeah, I had like this really substantial backup plan of majoring in history. And then in history, if you want to like do something substantial with that, you have to get a master's. Yes. (laughs) And you can either do public history or private history. Private history goes the academia route of usually you become a professor and you spend your life doing research, publishing books, that kind of thing. Right. Public history Mm -hmm. is like museum curation. Right. Which I would have gone the public history route because I've always loved like living history, Mm -hmm. like at Plymouth Plantation or Colonial Williamsburg or stuff like that, which is still acting. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) But even if I were just literally curating a museum, working with artifacts, just... I love teaching history in a broader context and connecting it to today's world and to people of all ages. Mm -hmm. Like, I would not have been able, I don't think, to say, yep, I'm just going to teach the same few things to people between the ages of 18 and 22 on average for the rest of my life. Right. Well, when I'm not doing that, I'm buried in, like, archives. Yeah. I'm, like, too much of a people person, and and I need to, like, I'm too curious. I need to explore too much, and I -hmm. love working with kids, especially. Right. So, yeah, I was always kind of, like, looking at the public history route. So that was, like, that was my backup plan, Mm because I had, and I even got into a college for it, like, a really good one, IU, actually. So that was, that was the backup plan, and then I got in here. Right. And I was like, that's it! God let me into one program, and that's all I needed. So was it just the one you auditioned for, or you auditioned for a couple more, and this is the one you got into? I auditioned for five or six. Okay. My parents set a radius mm-hmm. for how far I could go, and then I visited every school before I even considered auditioning, because if I didn't feel like I fit in at the school, then I wasn't going to waste my time. I mean, that's a lot of money and travel and application fees and whatever. I was right. Like, no, if I don't see myself there, why would I do that? Absolutely. Some people, you know, audition for like... 30 schools. Which is terrifying. Terrifying. And insane. I know. Just because they're like, just so I can get in somewhere. And I'm like, but if you're miserable there, what was the point? Also, if the first 15 say no, maybe, maybe consider just doing acting or doing something backstage. Like if you love, if you love the thing you want to do, then, and people are saying no, maybe you can go to an open program. Exactly. So I was kind of like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just audition for the ones where I could actually see myself going. Mm -hmm. I I genuinely can't remember off the top of my head right now if it was five or six. I think it was going to be six, but I got a concussion two days before six and at that point I had already gotten in here (laughs) so I was like yeah nope don't need to audition there I guess that you know I guess that's another sign from God or something just ended up here in the town where I grew up which again never expected I did the prep program here Mm -hmm. in high school but you were expecting to go off oh yeah okay oh yeah I my favorite school that I actually weirdly didn't end up auditioning for was Ithaca Okay, um, yeah. Yeah, because I, I love upstate New York and whatever, mm-hmm. but then, you know, the price tag yes. talked. My parents and I had, like, this serious conversation of, like, 
I wasn't going to live at home. Did like, they want you to? or they? No. Oh, they were like, you are not. No. And it wasn't like a mean, we're done with you living at home kind of thing. It was like, a, you should really, because it was something that they both did, was they lived away from home for college. Right. And my dad also went to college in the same town that he'd grown up in. And his parents had been like, maybe you should live at home. It's more cost effective. And he was like, no. <laughs> they both feel that it was really important for college students to learn how to live on their own learn how to like live independently and have to make your own food when you come home instead of having mom say there's leftovers in the fridge do your own laundry figure out your own transportation not have excuse me someone breathing down your neck to get your homework done that idea where you have to run your own life right they were like because if you don't do it in college wow the real world's world might really hurt right when you graduate i was like you right and i i hadn't really wanted to live at home either mm. i had always kind of been of the mindset of like i want to go somewhere else and try to live on my own and be independent so i live in an apartment out here and my family and i actually do a remarkably good job of pretending that i'm further away really? than i am yeah like they make a big deal when they come see you in a show and like that's pretty much when you see them except for holidays or kind of it's changed a little bit this semester because okay. i have a job off campus so you said you only have a bike right yeah yeah <laughs> um so i feel that like that factors into it a little bit so I, i've seen them a little bit more this semester than i usually do and it actually worked out really well my freshman year because a month into school a good friend of mine from high school committed suicide precisely one month later my grandfather died so Ooh. i was really really grateful to be so close to home and close to my family right and i got to see my grandfather before he died and right tell him things and kind of get a little bit of closure there mm-hmm. and then i was able to go to the funeral you know right same with my friend from high school so now that's not saying that it necessarily made the semester any easier it was right. still a really rough adjustment and whatever but just that idea that i being close to home has worked out mm-hmm. better than i thought it would when you had those moments, if you don't mind me asking, I don't. What, no. You don't have to elaborate on them or whatever. But did you did you ever stop and think, you know, maybe I haven't made the right choice. Maybe theater is not the way to do this. Because I'm asking because when I was a kid, like I performed, I started performing because I my great grandmother was alive. I would basically be alone with her, like she would babysit me, and she was my audience. And so I had this whole moment. She passed away 2015, August of 2015, and. I went right back into school at Marietta and I had two shows looking me in the face and I had this whole moment where I was like, I don't know if I can do this just because like people, I think people forget that even though you have the ability to put on the face of somebody else, you're still dealing with everything you're dealing with. So, and so I had this whole moment where I was like, I don't, I'm not sure if this is what I should be doing because I hadn't lost my purpose, but I had just lost a lost a little piece of why I started doing it in the first place. Yeah. So was that ever has that ever occurred in your life, or was that ever something that happened with these moments of? There were definitely. There's like one in particular that I can think of, like a big one, two, that I can think of where I wanted to leave the program, quit theater. So really. That's it. I'm done. I'm starting over. I'm gonna go to IU and major in history. I can't, but I can elaborate on those if you like. The deaths were not... They weren't those moments for me, weirdly. Okay. Um, They hurt a lot, but I've always kind of been the person that's, like, really guarded, and I just shut it off. Mm -hmm. Um, My professors were actually really worried about me that semester because... I didn't seem to be grieving. I workaholic my way through things, so I was just <laughs> working really hard. Yes. Not seeming to like either feel grief or 
maybe I'd like felt it, but then didn't seem to be processed. They were just kind of like, what's happening here? Right. But it was the first semester and they were like, okay, well, you know, her work is still good. Mm-hmm. A little emotionally blocked off, but you know, they were like, we'll just give it a little time. Christmas break came. I took some time to like really deal with it. I Mm -hmm. I went on my own to my grandpa's grave. So my grandpa did this thing where every Christmas he would give my parents a check for each of us kids to spend as they saw fit. Mm Mm-hmm. My dad's a financial advisor, so... Really? Personal financial advisor. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. So very smart with money. Yeah. So my parents usually put most of it in our education fund, and then right. they get us, like, a little thing for Christmas, and so we'd all been slowly accumulating pieces of nativities that match kind of our personalities. Right. So all of the pieces in your nativity had wine. Very funny. <laughs> yeah. But, no, they were, uh, they were like, Jim Shore. So really artistic and creative and mm-hmm. really fun. But the year my grandpa died, he had still written... I, I think he'd still written the checks. Right. Or in whatever my parents got in the estate. Yeah. They decided to still separate out what would have been the normal check for each of us kids. Oh, wow. So they gave i think they i'm not sure if they gave me the whole amount Mm -hmm. that time which would have been the first time ever to decide to do with what i wanted but i decided to buy my first pair of ladukas which are the really really nice dance character heels right that most broadway dancers like really need to be working in and it was like the perfect amount for them so he he was able to still give me like one big final gift right and i wrote him a thank you note like mm-hmm. I'd done every Christmas but you know instead of being able to give it to him this time I just took it to the grave right and was able to really get like a lot of closure so I came back the next semester and was like a different person mm-hmm. and my professors were like oh, okay cool we can stop worrying she's fine she's fine um, we're she's fine. we're good she just needed some time to process away from you know musical theater programs are unique in that like you get thrown into this group of people mm-hmm. that you eat sleep and breathe like you, you're, it's suddenly like this new family, but also you don't really know each other very well necessarily. So you're like, oh, right. so it's like this big negotiation between how much do I trust these people and how fast do I need to learn how to trust these people? Mm-hmm. And having all of that happen in the first semester is really tricky because right. you're still figuring out how to live with these people you're surrounded by. Mm-hmm. And then all of like this big life stuff and you're going like, oh my God. All I want are, like, my best friends from high school or my family or whatever. Right. The people that I know. What the, I'm familiar yeah, with. Yeah, what I'm familiar with. The people I trust. Mm-hmm. The people who totally get who my grandfather was to me or who this friend from high school was to me, you know. Right. So, yeah, it's it was, like, a really weird time to have that kind of happen. But it it actually, like, helped me to figure out what it was to be emotionally vulnerable and, like, really feel the difference between emotional vulnerability and being completely closed off. Okay. And it's, like, experiences like that that kind of help you see it. Because mm-hmm. I didn't realize how closed off I was until suddenly I wasn't. Right. So, that's, that's that story. That's that story. Um, but those, yeah. There were times I considered leaving, but it was not those. Okay. Do, are there any you feel comfortable sharing? Having sure. Having transferred away from a program... I know that once I had that thought three times, it's probably like an actual moment that I need to address and take care of. Three is a pattern instead of a trend. Yes, yeah. exactly. So for me, two was like really decisive. So in all of the time that I've been here, I have done, 
I've been cast every semester except this one that I was, like, able to be cast. So you can't be cast your first semester of freshman year. Right. Because they want to give you kind of, like, an adjustment period. Mm-hmm. And that's shifted a little bit over the years, depending on, like, if they need more guys who can dance. Guys who can dance or understudy roles that are yeah. open, I've noticed. Yeah. Every now and then. They try to avoid it if they can. So that right. you have enough time to, like, really adjust to what college is. Right. Um, which, again, given my first semester of college, I was super grateful yes. for. <laughs> and then the semester after that, so one... And then both a sophomore and then both of junior. So I've been cast five out of seven possible semesters and I just got cast for next. So I've mm. been cast six out of seven possible semesters. Right. And so headed into five, I had been cast consistently, like every single time as right. ensemble or featured ensemble, mm-hmm. which is difficult it's flattering in that it really said a lot about I did that thing well. Right. Because they could trust me to do it time and time again. And mm-hmm. I was. I was really good at it. Probably still am. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> but it was the kind of thing where it was like, okay, but I'm headed into my second semester of junior year and you cast me as featured ensemble again. What am I doing wrong? Right. Most people start there and kind of like work their way up to mm-hmm. supporting characters or understudy a lead. Mm-hmm. And I, I had understudy a lead, but I was still doing featured ensemble. And they also gave me dance captain in like one show. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this may have been intended as like flattery, but now it's just too much. Now I'm just doing a lot. Now I'm just dying. Right. So <laughs> thank you. But oh my God, please don't ever again. <laughs> um, so it was kind of like that moment. And you just kind of sit there and you go, Okay, but I'm getting, like, really good feedback in my classes and in my jury meetings and stuff like this. Like, the professors are proud of my growth and whatever, but I don't see that reflected in my casting. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of like a really, it's a tough blow, Mm -hmm. Um, especially when, like, there was a lot of talk about headed into The Mystery of Edwin Drood of how I was, like, perfect for this one role. And then I really messed up my callback which happened to be on my 21st birthday. So that was like a really, really fun birthday. I got like cut early from the callback and sent home. And I was oh. like, just kind of just a little depressed and not mm-hmm. really believing in myself because you kind of have this moment where, yeah, you're like, okay, well, the faculty, I guess, just doesn't believe that I can, can lead a production. Mm-hmm. They don't believe I have what it takes. And they're, even though theater is about, it's a lot of rejection and you have to, right. you have to believe in yourself because you're really not going to get a lot of other people to do it for you. Right. You, you can't rely on other people's belief in you. Mm-hmm. But in a college setting, to feel like the professors don't believe in you is a hell of a blow. Because yes. Because they're, they're the closest people to your work. Right. They have the professional opinions. And they're mm-hmm. the ones who are, like, nurturing and helping you grow. So went through kind of, like, a really rough spot with that and was like, maybe I've made a mistake. Maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing because at that point I was also kind of, like, deep in my minor and getting, like, amazing feedback from my history professors. Right. I was like, maybe I've made a mistake. Maybe I should have done history. And then I was like, nah, it's fine. I kind of forget exactly what got me past that, but I, I it had a lot to do with the mystery of Edwin Drood. Right. Where I ended up playing the stage manager, the onstage one. Right. Because Drood is, like, a show within a show. Right. But my character was originally... I was so confused by the casting. Mm-hmm. Because the character is named Jim Throttle. It's a man. Right. He appears, I think, three times total in the yeah. script. Total. And says, like, two things. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm a woman? Am I cross-dressing? Like, I thought the whole point was just that the role of Drood is cross-dressed. Who went to the director. I was like, is this something? And he was like, no, no, no. We're renaming the character. It's a woman. And I was like... 
cool. And the director finally looked at me and he was like, I don't, I don't know. I haven't decided what I really want to do with your character. I don't know. So just try different things. Create something from nothing. That feels tough. It was, but at the same time, I realized that it was the biggest gift they could have given me. Because they said, here's a girl who's so good at featured ensemble creating, you know, ensemble characters are so thinly written. You have yes. to create a lot from nothing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes here's... you have to give yourself a name. Yeah. 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 All the time. So I realized that it was like actually kind of a massive compliment. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, the director looked at me and he was like, I basically want you on stage the whole time. And that's what it turned into was I came up with the idea that we use a podium mm -hmm. just off stage in the wings, but still completely visible to like half to a third of the audience. Mm -hmm. And I stayed there like the entire show ran on did some bits and i had to improv a lot because things would go wrong on stage like legitimately wrong legitimately wrong so the chairman the way drew is structured it has a chairman this guy who like talks a ton and right. poor kenneth the actor playing him i mean did a great great job mm -hmm. but i would say about a third of the text in this very dense script is the chairman's so much and okay. so much of it is information heavy and very important to like you know, you vote on the ending of Drood. Right. And it's up to the chairman to explain all of that. If you flip two paragraphs in that, God help the audience, God help you. Right. So there's one night in, like, the first weekend, Kenneth skipped an entire page. Greg had also decided that it was my job to have all of Kenneth's stuff memorized. So okay. So if something like that happened, I could try to shift it. So I did. Right. Our closing show, for people who don't know the show, uh, the person, the woman who plays Edwin Drood, after Drood is killed or disappears or whatever, comes back and plays this other character, Dick Datchery. Okay. Dick Datchery's wearing, like, this elaborate costume so you can't tell who it is, and it involved, like, flight goggles and a beard and a hat and this massive cloak, and anyway, they're supposed to reveal it very quickly of who they are and just, like, strip it quickly. But our Megan Valley, the girl playing Drood, closing show, takes off the goggles, and one of the lenses pops out, and we'd all assumed it was plastic, it was glass. Oh, my goodness. And it, like, shattered on stage, and, like, the little plastic piece that had been holding it in just rolled into the orchestra pit. This is, like, in the middle of the show. We're all kind of standing in a line, like, ready to, to kind of talk about the voting and whatever. Right. But the audience sees it. We all see it. There's glass on the stage. Yeah. And literally, like, Kenneth looks at me, and I look at him, and he says, Jane, can we? And I said, already on it, Bill. And they're like, I'm running off stage to get a broom and I'm literally like cleaning up glass <laughs> during a performance, but it works. Right. There's a moment like something else went wrong and Kenneth just yells from on stage, Jane, I'm in the middle of a quick change. I have no idea what happened on stage. I'm like, what? He's like, Jane, I'm like, what? And the quick change finishes and I like run on stage. I'm like, what? He goes, the curtain, Jane. And I turn around and the curtain's fine. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you, you can't say that on stage. Right. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and he was like, it was all messed up. What had happened was there was a train set piece that's mm -hmm. on and then this drop curtain that says the mystery of Edwin Drood that comes about halfway through the stage. Right. And the train is usually pulled backwards so that the, the drop can come in. They hadn't pulled the train out fast enough that day. Ooh. So the drop got caught on the train and it's like a piled <laughs> mess and the action's trying to go on and it kind of stopped the show for a second. Yeah. But I'm off stage and I don't know. Right. I have no idea. And I said, well, I'm so sorry, Bill. No idea what I'm apologizing for. And he's like, don't let it happen again. What do we pay you for? And I was like, well, you right, Bill. You feel free to fire me whenever, but just you remember who fills the port bottle. Because <laughs> he has like this bottle of alcohol right by the chair where he spends the show and he's like... <gasps> you are sorry jane 
carry on. And I say, mm-hmm. <coughs> and I kind of like side-eye him and the audience, and the audience is like laughing and enjoying it, and I walk off stage, and I immediately look at another actor, and I'm like, so what happened? Because like, you just didn't know. They were like, you didn't know? I was like, no. What did I just improv about? What did I just cover up? And they were like, what? Like, usually you kind of have to know what you're improv about. Absolutely. And I was just kind of like, I don't, I'll just work with what I've got. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was honestly, it ended up being this massive compliment and this huge confidence builder and that I built what ended up being like a memorable character. Someone actually ended up thinking it was a lead. Really? On accident. I, <laughs> I don't know how it happened. Well, um, you were on stage the, pretty much the whole time. I'm on stage the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And so that kind of was like this massive confidence builder. Second time that I like really, really questioned it was headed into this semester. I wasn't cast. And I was like, okay, people. Into this semester. This semester. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, I'm a senior and you didn't cast me? Right. Like now I'm really sitting here going, oh my God. Am I doing the wrong thing? Am I really not good at this? Right. And I, I had a long discussion with Joe Deere about it. I was mm. like, what's happening here? And it honestly, it makes a lot of sense. I was not correct for the shows happening this semester. Right. They were either plays with kind of small casts or a musical that's really tap heavy. And while mm-hmm. I'm a good dancer, I'm not really a great tapper. And I kind of hate tap. So right. it, it makes sense. Yeah. You hate tap, but you wouldn't hate tap if they told you that you had to do it. Yeah. Sort of thing. If it's a part of the job, I'll do it. Right. Now, if I have a choice between a tap show and a non-tap show, I will pick the non-tap Absolutely. show. Absolutely. But, like, if you tell me that I have to tap, great. I will tap. Like, I'm, I'm good enough that I can do it. Right. So I was, like, really upset and broken over that, you know, kind of explaining to Joe, like... Look, I've I've given everything to, to doing this and plunged a lot of time and effort into this and it's I feel like it becomes really hard to believe in yourself if you feel like the faculty doesn't believe in you. Right. And he heard me and was like, I get it, y- you know? And then I kind of had to pull myself out of that one a little right. bit, but I I got the opportunity over the summer to do a production of the Secret Garden. Right. And it was a community theater production. I knew the director, I'd known them for ages, and I kind of came in and I said, "Look, I'm already taking, I have to take 12 credit hours this summer in order to, to get my minor and I'm in the honors program. And if I want to graduate on time, I got to take 12 credit hours this mm-hmm. summer. I need to start saving money like really seriously for New York. So I need to be working one, if not two jobs. So I can only do this production if I am Lily or Martha. And I don't want to be a diva or a bitch about it, but like, I'm just going to be honest with you. But if this I'm is not... the time I have for this show. It's got, it's got to be worth putting the effort in. Yeah. Okay. Like, and she, they really appreciated the honesty the creative team did. And they were like, no, we hear you. Like, mm-hmm. if we were in your situation, we'd feel the same way. And thanks for being upfront about it. Right. And then they cast me as Martha, which turned out to be probably maybe one of the favorite roles I've ever played in really? my life. I just, I slid into her like a second skin. Mm-hmm. She was just funny and goofy and a, a very much a big sister type and mm-hmm. always looking for the positives and... That was really what I needed at the time. Still took 12 credit hours, still worked two jobs. Right. Did this show, and then I ended up being the dialect coach. Like, I've always been pretty good at accents and dialects, but then... I was going to say, you popped right back into your Drew without any problems. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't even have to, like, let me get, let me see. Like, you just did it. Yeah, they're just, they've always been a part of me. And then last semester, I got to take accents and dialects with Deb Thomas, the professor here. Mm-hmm. And was really good at it, and then suddenly had the science behind it as well, and was like, cool, this is how it works. Mm -hmm. So I ended up dialect coaching a cast of 70. Wow. Because it was double cast. I had to do Yorkshire, formal British, and um, Indian 
Oh. Which is a real challenge to ha- to teach white girls how to sound Indian without being racist about it. Yes. Yeah. It's such a delicate balance, but thankfully there had been Indian accents in Drood as well, so I was okay. kind of like, I'd been listening to it, and I kind of knew, like, what was too far. Right. And what is respectful mm-hmm. and authentic. And thankfully these characters didn't talk a lot, and I was like, oh my god. Thank God. So yeah, like it was, it was a summer where I just kind of like had to step into some really big, big things. Right. And I did it. And for me, that was the moment where I was like, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, Martha ended up going like really, really well. And then this semester, because of the honors program, I have to do a like a senior honors thesis project. Oh, okay. Which has turned out to be a one woman cabaret show. That I... Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's in December on... December 1st. 1st, okay. Mm -hmm. 8 o'clock in the D-Lab. Okay. um, The Jubilee Directing Theater. Yes. (laughs) No one calls it that. No one calls it that. That's its official name. Yes. Um, Because if you say D-Lab, parents go, excuse me? And then... You're like, no, no. The Jubilee Directing Theater. Yeah. Yeah. The The Jubilee Theater. Or the Directing Lab. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I am doing... It's going to be about an hour and a half of roughly 15 Broadway and off-Broadway songs and stories, mostly true stories, pulled from my own experiences, and it's called Stages of Love. Okay. And it's about examining how how our perception and experience of love changes from the time that you're, like, a little kid mm-hmm. and into your teens, your early 20s. I'm not really going to address too heavily the things I know nothing about. Right. And I, I like, kind of discuss that as well, of how, you know, there are things that I can see mm-hmm. in other relationships that I've, I've gotten to the privilege to see in my life, mm-hmm. whether it's my grandparents or my parents or whoever. And I can see what I admire and love about those things, but, you know, and say what I want to experience. But I'm not going to try to be like, and then marriage. Like, I, I don't know. Right. I've never been married, so I'm not going to not gonna try to address that. Shocking, because I thought everybody was like at least married once by the time they're this age. Yeah. When I approach what role I want to play, not only do I look for, like, what is my type? What am I right for? But sometimes when I'm deciding whether or not I really want to do a show or, like, which show in Wright State's semester season do I really want to target... It's about, you know, obviously I was raised with a pretty, pretty deep background of faith. Right. And the Catholic Church is a complicated thing where I disagree with some things that the church says, but I agree with a lot of the others and I really feel at home there. And the way I see it, I'm, I'm married to my faith. Right. One disagreement doesn't mean I'm going to divorce my spouse. Right. So I, I love, I love that theater can give, can give voice to things that we didn't necessarily see. So like when I was playing Martha in the secret garden, she, I see her as a Christ-like figure to Mary, the, mm-hmm. the little girl who's in this deeply troubled place. So whenever I perform or when I look at a role, I ask, how can God speak through me and through this character to give an audience what they need? Mm-hmm. And even if the character is thoroughly unlikable or amoral or whatever, how can I be what an audience needs to hear in the time that we're in? Right. A Little Night Music is the next project that's yes. coming up. Which, I, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. I get to play Anne Eggerman, mm-hmm. which is really exciting. And in her, I see this naivete, this innocence, mm-hmm. that we maybe crave a little bit in this world where we're all so cynical. Right. It's not like cynical every now and then it's like constant cynicism everywhere constant because we're constantly pitted against each other and there's Mm -hmm. you're trying to stay optimistic but there's just 
everything around you, you want to feel negative or get angry or shout. They're shouting everywhere. Right. And it's getting to the point where we're all shouting so loud we can't hear the other side. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a huge problem. Anne is this innocence. This is something we want to learn from. Martha knew. Martha was knowing. Mm-hmm. But still so pure. You know, this idea that, like, I can't always play a character that's a bomb for society. Right. Or to the people in the audience. But I, I hope that the roles that I play give them something that they needed to hear. Right. Whether it was because they needed to know how thoroughly they disagree with something that came out of my mouth. I, I look for characters that speak to answer a question of society. Mm-hmm. Whether that's in a positive or a negative way. Right but to help the audience decide how they feel about something. And I, I think that's, a, that's an excellent way to approach it. Thank you. I think that's one of the better ways because some people approach it for fame. Some people are like, this is what I'm good at, so I'm going to go do it. And I think you and I run along the same vein of there's a intellectualism that you have to put behind what you're doing on stage. Oh, yeah. Is method acting kind of difficult for you? I, I love all of the activities. I love... That kind of thing. Right. If we're thinking method acting in the sense that, like, do I like when I live in my character 24-7? Only when it's a character with a positive outlook. Okay. Do I try to say, wow, I really like the way my character impacts other characters and the impact that my character has on an audience. Mm -hmm. I like that. I'm going to keep holding on to that in my daily life. Right. My problem, actually, it was, it's funny you should ask about the intellectualism mm-hmm. in acting, because when I first came in as a freshman, that was a real issue for me. Yeah. I didn't know how to, like, let go of the intellectual side, so you right. could, like, see me thinking on yes. stage. <laughs> overthinking. And I was, like, overly controlling myself and not really listening to my partners. Mm-hmm. I was planning everything out, and my teachers were like, let go. Right. And I was like, I don't know how. Which is where my minor came in handy. Okay. They'd originally told me when I when I came in, they were like, there's no way you can do a minor. Right. And I said, watch me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised by that at all. Yeah. So I didn't actually manage to get to start taking the upper level history classes that were in the minor until right. second semester, sophomore year. And it instantly changed my acting. Really? Because suddenly the academic part of my brain had something else to occupy its time. It was satisfied, and so you just got to kind of switch off, switch on that you do for being on stage. Yeah. Okay. Because, I mean, when I wasn't taking those classes, that part of my brain was was hungry, it was starving. It it had nothing to feed it, so it right. tried to control my acting. Yes. It was like, well, we have nothing else, so into acting we go. And right. I was like, no, no, and I, I couldn't separate the two. But when I finally was able to, like, occupy it with something else. I mean, it's like distracting a little kid, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like saying, Oh, look at the thing. Distracting a puppy dog, whatever. Just like giving it something else to do while you go do your own thing. Right. For lack of a better analogy, it's like when you have a hyperactive kid, you turn on the TV, you plop him down in front of that and look at that. You got three loads of laundry done. Right. (laughs) Like it's crazy, but it works. Right. So that was kind of what my minor was for me. I think academia has a place in theater, but it's not necessarily in acting Mm -hmm. it's in the Mm pre-work it's in the the analysis of the script work and in the concept Mm -hmm. of the show but it's not in the moment to moment of acting right i don't know if that's been your experience but that's at least been that's been mine i've had i i struggle because i actually i really enjoy another podcast that Dak Shepard does. It's called Armchair Expert. I love 
love his podcast. Was, okay. Yes. Yeah. But he was talking to Colin Hanks, and they were talking about the different ways that they approach projects now that they have kids. But something mm. that he said, I was like, that applies to me completely right now, which was he decided that he was going to be an actor. He auditioned for 10 years, and then he got nothing until, this is Dax, until he got punked, and then suddenly he was an actor, and then after Without a Paddle, he was like, oh no, I'm going to just be a director because that movie sucked. And like, I'm going to just be a director for the rest of my life. And so he stopped acting for a little while, directed, and then got back into acting. And it was this whole thing of, you have to do what's, his point was, you have to do what's good for your soul in the moment with your art. Yeah. And that's where I have started to live because every time that I act, I pull, I either pull far too much reality into it and I get stuck Ooh. Or I don't pull enough in, and I and you can see me thinking all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe I've turned out a couple good performances of the different productions that I've done. But I do find that where it's like I can't. I've built this elaborate world that influences this character in my mind, and probably put it on paper too. Mm-hmm. I basically I'm basically playing D and D, where I'm, where I'm like, yeah, I used to do that, and that was a trap for me. Yes. Where it's like, this is the whole, and here's what I'd do if these circumstances were the show, but they're not. Here, This is the circumstances we're in, so how did those circumstances that I made up apply to this show? And it's just, it's too much. Like, I'm just driving myself insane. I sometimes think of it as, like, the character is their own thing, mm-hmm. and I'm just a visitor. But that idea that, like, we're together for this brief moment, they had a childhood, I had a childhood... There may have been some similar moments in our childhood, and maybe I'll draw on those memories a little bit. There might right. be similar aspects of our personality. I'll draw on that a little bit. But I I don't need to know everything about their past, because there are things about my past that are totally extraneous that I maybe they affected who I am today. But, right. So I used to try to do that for my characters. Right. Like, these elaborate histories and... Who were they with the other characters in the show? And it got to the point where I was like, I don't think about, you know, when I'm talking to, to Sam, one mm-hmm. of my best pals, I don't think about all of the common shared experiences that Sam and I have had when I'm talking <laughs> to him in the moment. Right. I'm just talking to Sam. Right. And I have a connection with him that was built on things in the past. And I guess if I like think hard about it, they're there. But I don't need to think about them. Mm-hmm. I just need to say I'm close to this person. Right. The most helpful question I've ever found is do you trust the person across from you not the actor the character does your character trust the character across from you why or why not that's a wonderful question because if you're close with them you generally trust them right why do you trust them Mm -hmm. it's not a matter of like why are you close to them i'm close to my sister we were born in the same family right i trust my sister why do i trust my sister because some people are born with siblings and, yeah, they're close because they know everything about each other, but they don't necessarily trust each other. Right. But you get into this world of somebody you're not, and suddenly you're like, I have to think about the nuances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Came up with this bumper sticker. <laughs> it's not really a bumper sticker, but we, like, called it a bumper sticker. Like, right. something that was just short, concise, you could see it on a bumper sticker, and, oh, it would have an impact. Right. And I, like, put it in a paper, and my teacher was like, this is good. We're going we're gonna to work on this theme with the whole class. And it was characters are people too. We always think of our characters as like, I, I don't know, something that we have to, this this other entity that we like have to deeply understand. Mm-hmm. They're just people. Right. Sometimes they do things and you can't really explain why they do it. So yeah, characters are people too. Okay, so I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to you about She Loves Me before we get off this, oh my God. before we finish this recording. I can't... Part of me is like, I can't believe you remember that. And then the other part of me is like, nah, it makes sense. Of course I remember that. <laughs> well, here's 
my background is I remember I love Tom Hanks because of You've Got Mail. Yeah. And they're based off of the same source material. Perfumery yes. by Miklos Laszlo. I, you knew the name and I knew you would, which is why <laughs> I didn't look it up before this. So what about She Loves Me? Because it's your favorite musical. Oh my God, yes. Mm-hmm. And what about it is, what's the draw for you? It is, okay, She Loves Me is the perfect, and I mean perfect microcosm of humanity. It It's not characters who were written just to be funny, just to serve as comedic relief. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Sipos, who's funny because he's cranky, but he's cranky because he has a family and he's overworked. Right. And his boss is mean to him, but he's funny. Arpad just really wants to get ahead in life. But he's adorable and you laugh at him because, oh my god, he's trying so hard (laughs) with so much confidence. Amalia and George just desperately want a human connection and they think they've found it, but they also think that they date each other. And it's, it's this irony and the audience gets to laugh at them, but also be reminded of, like what it is to want love Mm. or to experience love and then to find out it's completely not what you thought it was. Mm -hmm. You have Mr. Marachek, sorry, he's Hammerschmidt in the play. I've read both. Um, So I almost said Hammerschmidt, but Marachek, whose wife is cheating on him. But he's also an employer. And they're each character is complex, but mm-hmm. at the same time, so simple. You you don't you don't have to go into the nitty gritty of each character. You just you recognize them as people in your own life. You could meet any character, and she loves me on the street tomorrow. I could walk out this door and run right into. I could run right into Arpad. I I could run right into Alona, the woman who is so sexually confident but so emotionally scared Mm -hmm. and feels so used but doesn't know how to get past that. It's, it is, it's beautiful and it deals with each character's little problems but never, never spends too long. You don't go too far down any particular rabbit hole. You're still clear on what is the main thread of this story and they all weave together but nothing is ever a massive distraction from the main point. Mm -hmm. It's the music. Oh my god, the music is stunning. Bach and Harnick. It's a real shame that Jerry Bach is dead. Um, it really is, because right. the two of them together wrote some of the best material in musical theater. Mm-hmm. Period. You look at Fiorello. I, I mean, Fiorello is incredible. It was the third musical ever to win the Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. Pulitzer went to a musical, which is, I mean, that almost never happens. Like, right. There have been five total that have done it in history. And a few years later, you have She Loves Me, which is completely different. Mm-hmm. And it was completely overlooked when it first came out. Right. Because it was such a small, simple story. And that's the other thing that I think makes it so perfect is that it's not big and flashy. Right. It doesn't have to be. You know, you love You've Got Mail because you're watching real people. Right. And you love, um, I don't know if you've ever seen The Shop Around the Corner by Ernst Lubitsch with James Stewart and Margaret O'Sullivan. Okay. It's from, like, the 40s. Right. Black and white. And it's it's very similar to mm-hmm. She Loves Me because it's it's really closely based off the source material. Okay. Actually, it's the closest thing to perfumery. Okay. And again, it's not big. It's not flashy. It's simple because it can be, and it knows that that's all it needs to be. The music may be big and sweeping, but you don't notice mm. because... It feels just right in each moment because the rest of the time it's simple. Bach and Harnick were very good at finding exactly the words and exactly the musical motifs to fit each human emotion. You have some composers who write big all the time. Mm. And that's what Pask and Paul do, which in today's day and age kind of works because everything is big and flashy everything right now. Is, everything is a pop song. Everything is a pop song. Mm. And so that's that's why people love Pask and Paul right now. Right. 
everything feels big and conflicted and dramatic. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what our world today tells us we have to be or what we're being forced into. But she loves me just says, we get it. This is your day to day life. And we've made it a musical, a musical that makes you feel happy and warm inside and filled with hope because you're watching people love each other, Mm -hmm. whether it's Amalia and Alona having a girl to girl moment or Arpad and Mr. Marichek having a a mentor-mentee moment, which you also see with George and Mr. Novak, but fighting, but... And it's almost like watching a father and son, Mm -hmm. but it's not. You know, you see see a microcosm of humanity. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what makes it perfect, is it doesn't try to be something it's not. And it doesn't try to make you feel something grandiose. Mm -hmm. It lets you escape into the perfectly ordinary because sometimes you don't need an escape into something big into a complete fantasy world there's a time and place for that and that can be really fun but sometimes it's really nice to just have a simple night you know like Mm -hmm. like think about personally some of the best nights of my life involved just sitting on the couch watching a movie with my family eating bowls of ice cream right it didn't need to be anything more than that Mm -hmm. when i think about the the moments in my life that i treasure the most they aren't the big flashy moments they're the little ones. And I think that's that's what makes She Loves Me so perfect. I could talk about it for hours. You'll well, have to shut me up. I love that explanation. You know, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do with Little Night Music. And I hope that your senior thesis goes well, your honors thesis Thank goes you. well. Spoiler, there's a She Loves Me suite in it. I am so shocked. As... <laughs> But applied to, like, things that have happened to me, which, again, is, I think, a good example of how relatable She Loves Me is. Mm -hmm. Rachel, I really appreciate that you wanted to do this podcast with me, and you have this presence about you that I think, no matter what you do, the world's going to fall in love with you. You know, I love your performances, and so... Thank you so much. I look look forward to seeing what you're doing in the future. Thanks. And thank you for, like, asking me to do this. I was so flattered when you reached out. I was like, oh my god, absolutely, Mm -hmm. because I've always enjoyed talking to you. You're, like, a really you're good at finding the questions to ask to get interesting things out of people well thank you i i just i just try to observe that's all i do you're good at it well thank you you don't just observe you see which is that's a very unique thing thanks thanks for being on and it's a pleasure yeah